Glad you're here today. Particularly if you're visiting with us, a special welcome to you. Today, as Brent mentioned earlier, we're starting our summer sermon series, which looks at Hebrews 11, and it's called By Faith. And so over the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to hear from a number of speakers who are going to help us examine several historical figures um, documented in Hebrews chapter 11, which is called, uh, you've probably heard it referred to as the Hall of Faith. And the people in these stories that we're going to learn about, they're sort of, they're giants of faith in terms of their trust in God. People like Rahab, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and others. And today we're not, we're not going to dial in on one in particular. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about sort of faith in the overarching sense. Um, and we're going to look at a, at a verse in Hebrews 11, so if you want to bookmark that. And also in, uh, in John chapter 1 and John chapter 6. So you can bookmark those or you can follow along on the screen when we get there. So here we go. I want to tell you a story. Two boys, university students, Callan and Sean. They're second year majors in chemistry. And uh, they met during first year and they became fast friends in the dorms. And so second year, they're spending a good deal of time together outside of class. And as the semester was drawing to a close, they were coming up on that dreaded time of exams. Uh, but these two, they were comfortable. They, were, they thought it was going to be smooth sailing. Their, their grades were good. They were so good, in fact, that they didn't feel the need, the impetus to study for their organic chemistry final. And so Sunday night, the night before the exam, they stayed out late with friends. They went to one of the campus pubs. They drank a little too much beer. They watched a little too much football. They stayed up into the wee hours of the morning. The next morning... Somehow, they both slept through their alarms, well through their alarms. And by the time they realized what was going on, they got up, they started to get dressed. The exam that they should have been taking at that moment was already well underway across the campus. They met in the hallway, they ran across the, the, uh, the campus together, and on the way across the campus, they devised a plan to tell their, their professor what had happened, why they were late, that they got a flat tire while spending the weekend at a friend's house. So they concocted this tale and their professor, when they got there, they walk into the classroom, they burst into the classroom, actually as the last of their classmates are turning in their exam, and they knew that they were in trouble. And so they go to their professor, and, and with sort of all this emotion and angst, they tell their professor what happened, that they, they had a flat tire this morning, that they had spent the weekend out of town at a friend's house. When they woke this morning, it was too early, they called a tow truck, but the garage was closed, no tow truck came for two hours. And so the professor says to them, no problem. I accept your excuse. You can come to my office in the morning and take your final exam. Not 100% convinced that they had succeeded, they left with a little bit of a smug look on their faces. Deep down, though, they would have admitted that they weren't certain that they were going to get away with it, but they were feeling pretty good on the whole. The next morning, they get up. Uh, not wanting to have a repeat of yesterday, they, they get dressed in plenty of time. They head to their professor's office. They arrive 15 minutes early so that they don't have to come up with yet another excuse. And they're a tad surprised when their professor seats them in different offices in the same building, different offices. They're a little nervous about that. But they turn the exam over. They see there's only two questions, and all of a sudden they fill, they're filled with a sense of, okay, we can do this. They read the first question. It was worth 45 points. They both answered it easily. They turned the page, and their hearts sank. Second question was worth 55 points, and it asked this, which tire? <laughs> With a one in four chance 
of answering the same tire, they could reasonably expect that they were sunk. They knew it. They had misplaced their faith in themselves and then their ability to tell and to maintain a lie, and they expected someone else to believe it, and it caused them to overlook one crucial detail, and now they were caught. So my question to you is, what have you placed your faith in? The Bible is, is full of stories of religious people, some who had faith in God, and many others who had misplaced their faith in either themselves or in their religious system. But having God, as we're going to learn in the next few weeks and hopefully today, is much deeper than any religious system. It's much deeper than faith and trust in our own abilities. And the crucial detail that we cannot afford to miss, the crucial detail, the tire, if you will, is Jesus. Because God has set everything up to be by, for, and about his son. Now, the majority of people through the ages have been very religious. Look around the planet and there are religious icons and idols everywhere on the planet. Every society has had its own system of religion. Down through the ages, almost every human being has at one time or another considered or believed in a supreme creator being or beings in one form. They've embraced everything from faith in their God to faith in no God at all, to atheism, which itself is a faith of sorts. And it may be that faith is the thing that people have given more attention to than any other concern affecting humanity. Think about the Egyptians. The ancient Egyptians in the time of the Bible, they worshipped multiple small g gods, uh, and they developed a system of sacrifice and of offering because they believed that their gods controlled everything from the weather to crops to livestock to life and death itself and more. To alert them to their misplaced faith, we're told in the scriptures that God sent the ten plagues on Egypt. It was his way of challenging the Egyptians and their belief that Pharaoh was in fact a god, and in challenging their gods of the river, of the livestock, of everything else, it was God's way of challenging them to prove that he was the only true god, the one who affected life and death, blessing and curses. The Greeks, the Greeks had their own plethora of small g gods. You know some of them by name. They built altars and temples uh, as places of, of worship to, to names like Zeus and Poseidon, Apollo, Artemis, and others. The Romans adapted some of those same gods, and they had their own system as well. If you visit cities like Athens today, Corinth, uh, Olympia, you'll find remnants of ancient ruins and structures that were built as places of worship that survive to this day. But you won't find any Greeks, likely, many, if any, who still have and maintain a, a misplaced faith in the Olympian gods. Paul, in the book of Acts, there is an excerpt about his missionary journey through Greece through that time. And recounting his visit to two ancient cities, Acts chapter 17 discusses Paul's visits to Thessalonica and Berea. And as was his custom, whenever he was on mission, Paul would stop at the local Jewish synagogue and he would share the scriptures about Jesus with those who were assembled there. It seemed like a, a, a good fit, ministry fit for him because having been trained since childhood to pursue God through the Jewish religion, who better than to minister to the Jews than a born-again follower who had once been one of them? And if you're familiar with his spiritual journey, then you know that prior to him meeting Jesus, where he was enlightened 
to the truth of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, that he had been a zealous Jew, a persecutor of the Christians, one who participated in the death of some, including Stephen, one who acted on a misplaced faith in the system of the Jewish religion. Yet here in Acts chapter 17, we find that he's the committed evangelist, that he's the preacher of the gospel called to proclaim Jesus wherever God takes him. Unfortunately, a a vocal group of unbelieving Jews gave him some grief, first in Thessalonica, then they followed him to Berea. They agitated the crowds and stirred them up, and some of his followers feared for his safety, and so they urged him to leave there, and eventually he headed south to Athens. When he arrives at Athens, he's waiting there. He sends word back for his friends to send Silas and Timothy to him, his two ministry partners. He had a little extra time on his hands, so he did what any good Jew would do. He decided to take in the city. He, he toured around Athens, and he noticed Acts chapter 17, verse 16 tells us that it was full of idols. And when he realized the presence of so many temples and statues, the scripture says that Paul became greatly distressed. Now, so you understand the degree of idolatry going on in Athens at that time. It's likely that they had more temples and shrines and altars per capita than the lower mainland has Starbucks. I googled that the other day. According to Google, my Google search, there's about 1,700 Starbucks in the lower mainland. Is that me? It is me? Okay, hopefully that takes care of it. And so Paul, knowing that there's so many altars and temples and statues, he's filled with this compulsion to preach the gospel to the Athenians, and that's what he does. He starts to tell them about Jesus. If you like, I would encourage you later to read Acts chapter 17. It gives you the the whole account, but suffice it to say this, that belief in other gods and in no god at all was as common then as it is today. And even though we might feel that that other religions are more prevalent today, uh, they were certainly prevalent in the time of Paul. Now, what's unique and fascinating to me about the Athenians is this. Not only did they have these statues and places of worship to the 12 known major gods, but they also had one to an unknown god. And it seems a little odd that you would have another statue to yet another god, but perhaps they felt the need to hedge their bets. Perhaps that they, they were worried that they had, on some off chance, overlooked a, a deity who functioned more anonymously in the religious life of their city. And so whatever their motivation... Paul references the inscription on this altar to an unknown God, and he uses it as his impetus for declaring to the Athenians the God so that they could know him by name as well. I said it a couple of minutes ago, but God is still unknown to many people today. They don't know him by name, or they use his name as a curse word or as an expression only because uh, they don't understand his nature, and therefore they can't comprehend his holiness, his infinite power, and his immeasurable love for them. To be fair, Christians, church, we don't always understand him perfectly either. I'm trying. Sorry if that's popping in your ears. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, We don't always understand him perfectly. And this world with all the suffering and evil going on in it, it doesn't make it easier for us. And so God gives us the scriptures so that we can know Jesus, uh, so that we can grow in our understanding and our appreciation of who he is and of what he's done for us. And so from cover to cover, the Bible tells us what God is like, and it tells us that his Messiah would come, that he would come and bring salvation. And he did so in the person of Christ. 
So what it's really about for us and for everyone who is seeking, it's about placing and growing our faith in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're given a definition of faith of sorts. It says this, verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And while it's not intended likely as a strict definition of faith, it does convey that, that trust in God and reliance upon him for what we don't know, for what we can't control. Can someone bring me the other pack? Just, I'll switch out real quick. Uh, for what we can't control and for what is yet to come, that can only be fully grasped by those who have a faith relationship with God, by those who have had a personal encounter with him. To put it another way, Christians, we have this firm conviction that God can always be trusted simply because he's God. And that's hard in times of trial to press into, but that's what faith is. So here's my question. Do we really have that depth of faith? That, that God is? That his promises are true? That Jesus is the sent one of God? That by his death, there is redemption? And that because of his work on the cross, that we will one day, if we've professed our faith in him and asked forgiveness, that we will one day be with them. Those are key considerations of faith. And it brings us to the first blank, if you're following your outline, in matters of faith, look to the witnesses. Look to the witnesses. Paul's testimony concerning the unknown God in Acts chapter 17 was intended to challenge the belief system of the Athenians. And just like the plagues had affected the belief of the Egyptians, or at least that was the intended purpose, if we had been there in the time of Paul at Athens, if we had heard his testimony, we would have noted his deep passion for God. We would have observed and heard and possibly felt his love for Christ. And I'm certain that we would have found his argument compelling, as some there did. Ultimately, the purpose of him testifying to the Athenians was not to condemn them, but it was to call them to a response. Remember, I said it was a faith challenge. And his hope was that they would accept his testimony, the story of Christ working in him, that they would believe and that they would be saved, just as he had been almost 20 years prior walking that road to Damascus when Christ showed up in his life and intervened powerfully. And while some of the Athenians were initially curious and they sought to know more, they even took him to another place where they could learn more. They took him to the Areopagus and they said, hey, you're coming with some interesting teaching. We want to know more about this. Many of them were curious. When the story of the resurrection left Paul's lips, the sneers began, the departures began. Still, the scripture records that a handful of those folks, like Dionysius and Demarus, as well as some other unnamed people, it says that they became followers of Paul and believed. Now, what specifically helped them to across uh, the line of belief is not entirely clear to us. What is clear is that they came to faith in Jesus by Paul's testimony. Look to and consider the witnesses. Who are the witnesses in your life? Who are the people, when you consider your faith journey, you look back and you remember the impact of those individuals? The faith witnesses that I know, the people who are active in sharing their faith, they have several key similarities, but one of them being that they are active in actually sharing their faith with others, with those they encounter in life. And just like Paul at Athens, they, they regularly share life experiences. They talk about joys. They talk about trials. They talk about the intimate details of their journey to where they actually crossed the faith line in Christ. And they don't necessarily have it all together. In fact, they don't. None of us do. 
but their faith in him is obvious. Some are today persevering in the face of great trials. You don't have to look far around this room if you know people in this room. There are those who, we don't know what we don't know, and we can't answer everything about faith. Some people, though, they're walking through, in addition to that, they're walking through deep emotional pain and suffering. They're striving to live obedient lives, to tell others about Christ and what he's done for them and how he's sustaining them and how grateful they are for that. And they have this joy and this contentedness that just isn't easily described. In fact, the people that I'm thinking of today, they they seem happiest when they're sharing about Christ. They come alive. Their faces light up. They look for the next opportunity to to tell somebody about Jesus. As I reflected this week on the witnesses in my life, I recalled again that my journey to faith in Christ began when I was a child, long before I was even aware of what was taking place. There were people working in my life that I didn't understand that's what was happening. I thought of my grandmother who shared Jesus with me in almost every letter she ever wrote me. I had, no kidding, shoeboxes full of letters from my grandmother, my time at university. She wrote to me tirelessly. And there was always something about God and Jesus and faith in her letters. Later in my 20s, when I was living in Saskatchewan, it was a police officer and his family who frequently and regularly invited me to church and then out to lunch with his family, a faith witness in my life. Then there was my sister who came to Trinity Western University when I was still an unbeliever, went to school here, sent me a Bible, I've told you this before, and and I began to read that Bible even though I had no previous desire to do so. I began to do it out of a sense of obligation to my sister to honor the gift. And each of these people played a part. The scripture played a part in time in my life. And God began to work. How did your journey begin? Who, Who were and who are the faith witnesses to you? And if you've crossed that line of belief, that line of faith, are you now ministering for Christ, a Paul, in the life of someone who is searching for the truth. Truth is, God gives us opportunities virtually every day to initiate a faith conversation with a neighbor, a coworker, family member, friend, somebody we know. I was visiting last week with a friend of mine, and he was telling me how God was working on him and creating a sense of burden in his heart to minister to people, to have deeper conversations with people on the bus because he regularly sees the same folks during his commute. And so he knows some of these people by name now, and God's urging him to to share his faith and to take the conversation deeper. That's bold, and I pray that he figures that out. But what's interesting about him is I look around in his life, and I see in the intimate relationships he has, he is actively sharing his faith with others. And I've seen God do some remarkable things in those conversations. One young man that he ministered to this year actually came to faith in Christ. Some of you... You're going to have this opportunity this week. You've decided to help us with soccer camp. We've been doing it for 20 years. Some of you have been doing it that long. Uh, And so we're going to have the opportunity this week because God is bringing us families and he's bringing us children. Many of them we know. Some of them, many of them are from our church body, but many of them are not. And so the question is, will we be faithful and will we take those opportunities and will we look for those faces that we don't know when they come onto our campus, when they come onto the campus next door, and will we share as faithful witnesses and start a faith conversation about Jesus? Now, if you're in the category and you wouldn't characterize yourself as someone who has a saving faith in Jesus today, then I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to look around 
to the faith witnesses in your own life, the people that God has placed there for you, just like he placed Paul in the life of the Athenians, just as he placed people in my life, as I mentioned earlier. I'll guarantee you this, they're there, they're present. Uh, you just may have to be the one who, who starts the conversation, and invites them out for coffee and a chat so you can learn more about why their faith in Jesus is so relevant to them. Second, in matters of faith, look to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him, God, known. Jesus has made God known. God knew that we needed help to fully understand and to grasp, and he knew that we wouldn't get there simply by obeying the rules. And so he has filled the New Testament with stories that illustrate how our Heavenly Father's nature is to show compassion, that he wants to rescue us from sin, that his nature is to love us. And as he calls us to repentance in Christ, he urges us to look to Jesus. I see Jesus as strengthening our faith in three significant ways. First, Jesus, not you, not me, no other person in history, Jesus endured the cross for our sin. He did so so that we could be spared, so that we could be saved. The scripture says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient even de uh, to death, even death on a cross. As if to die was not enough, the worst way possible, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus endured the cross. Second, Jesus' model of faith and trusting in God is perfect from beginning to end. The scripture says that he was without sin. And because he perfectly submitted to his Father's will, the scripture says this, that God glorified Jesus in Philippians 2.9. Because he humbled himself, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Third, from the moment we come to faith in Christ to our last breath in this life, it's Jesus who sustains our faith. He is the giver and the sustainer of faith. Your outline says Hebrews 11.6. It's not, I apologize. It's Hebrews chapter 12, and it says this in verse 1 to 3. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then it says this, consider him, consider Jesus. Look to Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In matters of faith, look to Jesus. If God has worked through the witnesses in your life, and if you've hit the place where you're looking for hope for your future and acceptance and forgiveness for your past, if you haven't accepted him yet, I want to encourage you to do that today, to make a faith decision today. The Bible says that Jesus, in, Romans, in Revelation chapter 3, it says that Jesus knocks on the door of our hearts and he calls to us. And it prom he promises that if we confess our sin, that he'll forgive us, that we will be saved. Maybe you have considered this for some time. Maybe perhaps you felt you feel held back by something, something standing in your way from making that decision, stopping you from realizing the promises that are there for you in Christ. If you're prepared to make that decision today, we want to support you. And so what I would ask you to do, I would encourage you to share that with somebody before you leave today. You can come and see me after the service. If that's 
intimidating, then you can email us. Uh, there's an email address on the screen for you if you want to share your faith story with us. Or you can just simply write it on a Connect card and drop it off uh, at the welcome desk after the service. What we want to do is we realize that, that, a faith, uh, that faith is about making a commitment and we're calling people to surrender to Christ. And so what we want to do is we want to celebrate that with you and we want to support and encourage you as you begin to grow. Lastly, look to the people in the scriptures who trusted what they could not yet see. And this is where we come back to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. In the coming weeks, several of our speakers are going to take us on a tour of the hall of faith. And uh, we're going to look at the portraits, if you will, of the men and women whose faith in God required a trust beyond what you and I have been asked to muster. We have the story, the life, the witnesses, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Many of them did not. We'll see and we'll learn and we'll be reminded that even though they heard no direct mention concerning Jesus, no powerful testimony from a Paul in their day, still they believed in God's promise and they looked for the coming of his Messiah. And so without an inkling of a future man named Jesus Christ, Abraham was satisfied with his knowledge of the promise that God had give, given to him, that he had received from God, that from the offspring of Abraham, from the line of his son Isaac, the nations of the world would be born and be blessed. And so in Abraham's mind must have been the question, as God calls him to take his son up on the mountain and to sacrifice him, the question had to, to, to come to mind, knowing that the promise was true because it came from God. Can God raise the dead? See, that had never been seen before. There wasn't a resurrection for him to refer to. And yet Abraham believed that he could because he went up on the mountain with his son, no doubt scared, but confident and assured that God could be trusted. And God did provide another way. Consider the Israelites as they fled Egypt. They ran straight toward certain death. With the Egyptian army and the bloodthirsty Pharaoh hot on their heels at their backs and the Red Sea in front of them, they had no assurance of an escape. They had no foreknowledge that the sea would close in on Pharaoh and his army and swallow them whole after they crossed safely, yet they had faith that God would deliver them, and he did. He provided a safe crossing, the scripture says, on dry land. Look to those who trusted what they couldn't see, and yet they took steps of faith. There are lots of people in our church today who are trusting God in spite of the circumstances they're facing. Some are facing serious personal hardships. Uh, Brent mentioned this morning the fires. We've had family members and friends affected who have come to the lower mainland looking for relief from that. Others are suffering through illness. Some are praying for their teenager or their young son or daughter who isn't saved. Family members are praying for other family members who follow a different religion. Some in our church body and our family and extended family are facing the end of their own life. Others, like Brent mentioned this morning when he prayed, like John and Lisa Gamba, or Pam and Brent for that matter, they, are, uh, they have to let go of their precious daughters for a while because God has moved in their hearts and he's called them overseas to serve. Gabriella and Sydney, they have to trust God. They don't necessarily know the outcome of what they've been called to as they head off to serve. They're not entirely certain, but they're certain of this. They're sure of the calling. And then there's others in our church who've had their hearts stirred by God as he's called them to begin a ministry, to act in faith and to start a ministry. 
And even though they don't necessarily know the outcome, again, there are people in our church helping who all school year helped to provide breakfast to children at James Hill Elementary School to feed young children so that they could start the day full of energy and learn. Still others are working through a ministry that one of our partners started called Dinner and Elegance, feeding families and people in Langley City who deal with economic challenges that most of us don't, and introducing them to Jesus and starting faith conversations with them. And so taking faith steps together, these folks are helping to meet real needs, and they're helping people experience God's love and learning about his grace because they've decided to be obedient servant witnesses. What we believe is this, as a church, we believe that God has called us to be a church that sends people out, one that equips people for serving, whether through missions or ministries or other forms of service. And that means seeing people depart for a time from here. That means seeing people labor and strive and work to build ministry and ministry cohesion and teams that means that we're going to have to get used to that for a while. That means we're going to have to deal with the challenges of, of providing financial means and prayer support and encouragement as God continues to call people to act by faith. My question for you, church, as the worship team begins to come this morning is this. What faith step has God called you to take? Where is he challenging you to grow in your faith and your dependence and your trust on him? Is it to go and serve overseas? Is it to participate in a ministry, to start a ministry? Is it to start a faith conversation this week with that person who's on your mind now, that neighbor, that friend who doesn't know Christ, who is suffering and struggling, looking for hope, and God's put you right smack dab in the middle of their life? What's he calling you to do this week? Join with me as we pray. Father Jesus, Lord God, we, we pause to praise you this morning. God, knowing that for those of us who call Christ Lord, you have called each of us by name, and it is the work of your Holy Spirit that drew us to faith in you. But Lord, we confess that there are circumstances and trials and times in our lives when our faith is shaken, when our trust grows weak, and Lord, sometimes when our knees just want to buckle, so God, confessing this morning our great need for you, Lord, we ask you to continue to strengthen us, to use faith witnesses in our lives, people who have a firm foundation and are trusting in adversity, to continue to speak encouragement and truth to us, Lord. We pray for the people you've put in our path that we would be witnesses to. We thank you for the witnesses in scriptures who trusted beyond what we can imagine who knew not the name of Jesus and yet trusted in the promises you had for them. And God, this morning we think of people in our church who are trusting in faith in the midst of what seems like painful, even insurmountable circumstances. God, where we do not have answers, where we don't have understanding, we do believe that you are God, that you are Lord, and you've called us to follow you so God, encourage us this morning as we sing, Lord, I pray these words resonate in our hearts, that they draw us closer into your presence, that they honor you. And God, we don't just sing, but that we feel the power and the truth in these words, and that we praise and we worship you and you alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.